it's such a blessing. You know, I came in here and I saw Gary up on the, in, in the front, and I'm thinking, man, if Gary can show up for church today, then there's no reason why this coach should keep me from preaching. So thank you, Gary, for being an inspiration for me and for our church. <clears throat> when 2014, um, I had the privilege to head over to D.C. My mother just won a prestigious award for teaching. She won a presidential award for teaching in excellence in education. So we were invited to Washington, D.C., and I'm just so proud of my mother. My mother's back there. Um, she's such a great teacher um, and has done so much for so many kids. But she won this award where we got to go to the White House to meet the president. At least she got to go to meet the president. So it was my first time going to D.C. that I could remember. I remember going when I was five, and I, I don't remember any, or even four. I don't even, what, two? Two and a half. Two and a half. She got my story. So I was two and a half. I don't remember anything about D.C. So I, we took a flight there. It was my mother, my wife, and me. And um, it was just amazing. But it was late in March. You know, it's kind of like today's weather. It's like it started, we had a snowstorm when it's supposed to be spring. Cherry, the cherry blossom is supposed to start blossoming. It was a snowstorm, and it's kind of like today. It's such weird weather. We're having winter weather here in Hawaii, and it was kind of like that trip. So we showed up. There was a snowstorm, and the day they were supposed to go to the White House to meet the president, they said, we don't know if it's going to happen because government is going to shut down. It's just too crazy out there. But it just so happened that things opened up, and my mother got to go to the White House, and there was about 100 teachers there, one, two from every state. And they were, um, they got to shake hands with President Obama. And then when they got to my mom, President Obama says, oh, where are you from? That was my President Obama voice, where are you from? And um, she said, oh, Hawaii. Well, the lady from Hawaii gets a hug. And she was the only one to get a hug from President Obama. What an amazing trip. But I remember, you know, one day, while she was at the White House, my wife and I, we went sightseeing, and we went to the Arlington National Cemetery. And it's pretty amazing where you, you look at all those tombstones and you say, you think to yourself, man, so many people died for our freedom in this country. And it, it's, the way it's laid out is just unbelievable, the thought that went into it. You look down this way, all the tombs are lined up with one another. You look straight ahead, and they're still lined up with one another. You look any direction, and the tombstones are lined up with one another. It's just amazing how they laid it out. Now, there's this mountain at the top of the hill. And at the top of the mountain is the tomb of the unknown soldier. The identity of this soldier is unknown. And his tomb is laid to rest there. And there's a guard that watches over it seven days a week, 24 hours a day, 365 days of the year. Through rain or storm or heat, there's always a guard, a sentinel, keeping watch over the tomb of the unknown soldier. Pretty amazing. 
how the country honored somebody that died for our country. And on the tombstone, it's, it, there's a saying, and it says, Here rest in honored glory an American soldier known but to God. Now to me, there's such great tragedy in not knowing the identity of someone that died in battle because there's no closure. No closure for the person, no closure for the parents, no closure for friends. But we as a country honor that person because of what they've done for us. Now here we are in week two of our series about heroes in the Bible. Well, I wanted to talk about my hero. My hero is the psalmist of Psalms 22. In your Bible, you might see above the psalm a superscript prior to each psalm, which may state that it's a psalm of David. Yet there's much debate among scholars about the authorship of each psalm. Many believe David could have been the author of many of these psalms, or that he was a person that gathered all the psalms and put them in a collection, and it's attributed to David. Some psalms can be related to the life of David. You can see, oh yeah, I can see how this relates to David. Yet there's other psalms that seem so inconsistent with David's life. In this psalm, Psalm 22, the authorship is attributed to David, but many scholars believe that they don't know who this author is. This author is like the unknown soldier. Like our nation's hero. Now I just want to talk about the Bible a little bit. The book of Psalms is a collection, a library of poems and songs put together, just like the Bible. The Bible was never meant to be read like one long book. It was because of our church fathers, they decided, okay, this book fits, we want to keep this book, we have this book, we want to put them all together. So the Bible is a collection, it's like a library of many great books, influential letters, many great stories. And each book, letter, story is written to a particular audience at a particular time in a particular setting. It wasn't written to be put in a vacuum where it, it has influence wherever you, you know, at any time. You have to know the context of which it is written. That's where the power and the depths and the, and the story comes to life. These stories had meaning and depth and it connected with, a, with the people in their certain situation in their particular time. It wasn't meant to be one long document. Well, the book of Psalms is constructed similarly to the Bible. There's a collection of all these psalms. Now, there are many types of psalms or songs. There are psalms of worship. There are psalms of thanksgiving, psalms of praise. Yet there's another type of psalm that I am so grateful that it's included in this collection. It is the psalm of lament. Lament is a complaint or a petition or a prayer. 
One-third of the Psalms is a psalm of lament. Now, lament is not about posting a complaint on Facebook about a person who just stole your parking, okay? Or about a person who, who said something to you that you didn't like and you think that person's just so irritating. Lament is a complaint or petition or prayer to or about God. It could even be about God. Now, the church that I grew up, they always emphasize being victorious in Christ. That you need to be a winner. Don't complain. Have faith. You are more than a conqueror through Christ Jesus. Say only positive things. I was taught that being a Christian was synonymous with being a champion. The problem with that is that winning isn't easy. Winning takes work and dedication. And even with that, people still lose. Last month was March Madness, where 64 teams competed to win one national championship for basketball. Both the guys and the gals. At the end, there is only one champion, champion, the North Carolina Tar Heels. Praise God. One winner and 63 losers. Were the players on the team, on the losing team, failures because they weren't champions? Was God rooting only for one team? Did God only help the winning team? Did the losing players give a shout out to God because they lost? Thank you, God, we lost. Charles Barkley, the round, bound, and rebound. He gets hounded all the time because he never won an NBA title. Yet, He's one of the most entertaining personalities in basketball. Was he a loser because he didn't win a title? What about those people who don't win? Those who fail, those who are unsuccessful? Now, the reason I chose the psalmist as my hero is because I can relate to him in the deepest level of my soul. He gives me permission and a voice to my innermost cries to God. My deepest thoughts, my worst fears, the psalmist frees me to voice my hurts, my pain, my anger out to God. Especially when I lose my compass, when times get hard, when things get difficult, as the waves billow over my head, as I'm gasping for air, as I'm overwhelmed by the turbulent waves of life. In desperation, I am free to express to God my rawest emotion of my soul. As if God is fine with me getting angry with him when I try to make sense of life. You have something you want to get off your mind? Give it to me. I'll take it. Let it out on me. See, this psalm has helped me to see that I'm not alone in my cries. That I'm not the only one who feels despair 
or rejection, that we are free to lament without fear of offending God. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Psalms 22. It starts off by the author stating this, the psalmist saying this. My God, why have you saving me? So far from the words of my groaning. My God, I cry out by day. in verse 3. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. You in, in your answers, ancestors put their trust. They trusted you and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you they trusted and weren't disappointed. So here the psalmist goes to what he originally knows about God. What he was taught in Sunday school. He pleads with God, trying to get him to move. And he does so by reminding God what he has done in the past. Yet the psalmist does something I think that we all do at some point. He tells God, remember what we did when you were getting us out of Egypt? Remember that? He refers back to the Exodus story. He tells God, look. Our people trusted in you and you got them out of Egypt. I trust in you. Yet the irony is that Israel wasn't always faithful. That's why it took them 40 years to get out of the wilderness. Because they weren't faithful. But we will say and remember anything. Then he goes on in verse 6 and says, But look at me. I am, but I am a worm, not a human being. I'm scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let him rescue, let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights. Here the psalmist feels like everyone is mocking him in this current situation. Like all eyes are on him. That he's alone. And he's afflicted in the circumstance. And he hears what he thinks everyone is saying about him. You know that proverbial voice that we think, oh, so-and-so saying this about me. When it might not actually be true. 
He feels like the weight of the world is crushing down on him. Can you relate to the psalmist? I stood up for you, God, and now I'm in this horrible place, and I feel like everybody is enjoying seeing me in this situation. They're mocking me. They're saying, where's your God now? In verse 9, continues to say, Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me feel secure on my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. My mother's womb you have been, from my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near. And there is no one to help. He finally states that, Look, you gave me life. You put me in this mess. You gave me life to see me dying like this? To see me suffer like this? Do something about this, God. Help me. Then the psalmist writes, Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Basham encircle me. Roaring lions, they tear their prey. Open their mouths wide open against me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like the potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. To you lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. The psalmist paints this vivid picture of chaos and disorientation. Now, take in mind the psalmist knows nothing about Jesus. He's not referring to Jesus at this point. This psalm is written at a particular time sitting in a particular moment meet the audience he doesn't know that this is this could be about Jesus and take that into consideration then he ends with this prayer this final prayer and he says but you Lord do not be far from me you are my strength come quickly to help me deliver me from the sword my precious life from the power of the dogs Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. His prayer is that God would intervene. And the following verses, the anguish of the psalmist turns to praise. He ends with this. And see how they contrast with what he was previously saying. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him, revere him. All you descendants of Israel, for he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to the cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. 
May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to God. All the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive, prosperity will serve him. Disorientation, new orientation. Orientation is our embedded theology, our embedded faith. What we are taught through our pastors, our teachers, our you know parents, our Sunday school teachers. But somewhere along the way, these teachings will fail us. And we will face a time of disorientation where our faith becomes deconstructed. In these times, we face a um, painful conflict between what we know, what we were taught, and what we're going through. What you knew about God will no longer be true, and it doesn't work anymore. When Jesus was on the cross, and he shouted, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He wasn't on the cross saying, look, I'm fulfilling prophecy. I'm saying what the psalmist wrote. And I'm going to say this so that everybody knows this is what's happening. No, what Jesus was saying is what people would do, they would say the first line of a psalm and say, and in doing so, they're saying, I am in the situation. I feel like the psalmist right now. So when Jesus was on the cross saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was saying, God, why aren't you here? I'm on, I'm dying. Where are you? It is Jesus' most human moment. He feels like God isn't present at the time of his death. He is disoriented. Then God shows up in a new, more meaningful way. Our faith, your faith, is no longer based on what you were told or taught, but it's now something you've experienced. It's something you have now owned. And now God becomes much more real than he has ever been before. See, authentic worship emerges when the worshiper dares to express their pain and raise it before God. Their deepest questions about the reign of God and the injustices they're facing in their life and in the world. God allows us to articulate our grief as we come to terms with ourselves. We are given the freedom to voice 
are radical doubts. The amazing thing about God is that even through all our doubts and our fears and our hopelessness and our pains, and even what we do, it's not what we do. It's about who God is. God tends to show up. That's the goodness of our God. year, but we had to wait because of the pressures of, you know, finishing our education and um, just cultural expectations. And in 2001, we got married, and it was a great time. You know, our parents were there, our friends were there, you know, and our, our closest relatives were there. But 2002 was, I think, one of the toughest years for us. See, my father-in-law was diagnosed stage four cancer of the lung. And it was hard for us. Michelle loved her father. I loved her dad to death. Because he's been there for so many things. They were super close. And when we found out he had cancer, Michelle, it was hard for her. And we, we decided, okay, let's believe God for a miracle. We're victors in Christ Jesus. We can ask anything we want to we can move mountains. We're going to believe in this miracle. So I remember Michelle went to the house almost every night. And they would have a long Bible study. And then sometimes they wouldn't even be up. You know, Dad had so many questions that sometimes he would go on and on. And keep on reading for hours and hours and asking questions that we're all worn out. job, you know, and he's just digging into it. had faith. We believed God was going to do something amazing. And okay, we, we, we shouldn't take care of things because is that showing faith? If, if we have that fill out a will and all this other stuff, is that showing faith? So we just put it off. And then one day, dad was having a hard time. And we had to call the this came. And he died. He died and we were crushed because we had faith that God would do a miracle. Where were you, God, at this time? What happened? Why didn't you show up? God, my God, why have you forsaken us? But we had our you know, our beliefs that we couldn't complain, we couldn't, you know, question what we wanted to. And I remember 
last year at Fuller, I needed one class to meet the requirements so I could graduate. And there was this one professor. Her name was Mignon Jacob. She was like, you know, the soup Nazi in, um, what's it called, Seinfeld? Well, she was like the professor Nazi. Nobody wanted to take her class because she was just really hard. But I needed to take her class in order to graduate. And it was on the book of Psalms. And it was during that time where she made us dig into the Bible and look at the psalmist and say, what is actually going on? And for me, it was so refreshing to see that this psalmist was given permission to complain to God. That I, So at that point, I could release everything that I felt in 2002 and say, God, why didn't you show up? We were working so hard. We tried our very best. Wasn't that good enough? Where were you? We trusted you so much, and you didn't show up that day. Later on, during that summer, I needed to take um, a chaplaincy at Huntington Hospital. And it was, for me, one of the most scariest moments because I would walk into the thought of walking to a patient's room who has cancer and answering those questions was scary for me. But it was it, because I took that class, because I learned about lament, I was able to go in there and just sit with the person and say, is, how do you feel? How do you understand God at this moment? And some would have those answers that, that I have faith, I think God's going to heal me. And I was like, that's great. And then you would go into, an, I would go into another patient's room, and they'll be like, "I am so angry, God! I don't know why I'm here." I mean, that's what the hospital. There's so much cries of lament in the hospital. Why did God let this happen to me? I'm all alone. I don't have family. Nobody's taking care of me, and I'm going through this. Yet we were taught to ask one more question: Ask. Where do you see God in this situation? And they would say things like, oh, no, well, you, you come to visit me every single day. So that's good. And I'm thankful for that. I'm also thankful that God has given me good doctors. You know, and there's people who are trying to take care of me. This is why the psalmist is my hero. He is, he is my hero because he has given me permission and the freedom to vent to God my deepest hurts, my deepest feelings of even being betrayed or being alone or afraid. In a time when facing so much that it becomes overwhelming and paralyzing, I don't need to keep these feelings bottled. 